0: Well, what a joy it is to come once again to the Word of God. And we want to turn to the same text that we looked at this morning. So turn with me to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, and we'll use just one verse as kind of our jumping off point this morning. And this evening rather. Romans eight twenty-eight. One of the most familiar verses in all of our Bibles. Romans eight twenty eight. Follow along with me as I read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We considered this text this morning and we'll continue with it as our home base for our evening time. The year was a long time ago and I was a freshman in college. I was enrolled at a large state university with tens of thousands of students. I came as a freshman, and because there were so many thousands of students, of course, as you're picking your classes, the general education classes especially have dozens and dozens of times and days available for every class. I have no memory of how or why I chose the particular schedule I did for my very first semester. I don't even remember doing it. But for some reason, I chose a Monday, Wednesday, Friday English class. One of a couple of dozen that I could have chosen from, probably because it was convenient for me. And in this particular English class, one of dozens I could have chosen from, there just so happened to be a young lady. This young lady, on that day that I first saw her, I decided that day that I wanted to marry her. Sounds silly, doesn't it? Our very first week in that class, this young lady just so happened to have an afternoon free and just so happened to be brave enough to spend that afternoon with me, a complete stranger. And that afternoon changed the course of both of our lives. And of course, this is my dear wife, Sylvia. 35 years later, four children later, many, many adventures later, we can see the hand of God so graciously and expertly brought us together. And now, I I don't think a year would be enough time to recount all of the times that we've seen the Lord at work in our lives in ways that we never would have imagined. And listen, if you're a follower of Christ, that's true of you as well. That God has been working and moving and doing and executing plans in your life. And that's what makes the Christian life so exciting. That's what makes it thrilling As one who's submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've pledged your full allegiance, come what may, to your savior and your king, Jesus Christ, God has been moving and working and planning and skillfully and artistically weaving your life together, weaving the fabric of all that you do and all that happens to you. And if you will embrace this truth, The expectation that God is going to do things. The full expectation that in your life, Romans 8.28 is hot off the presses. Every day of your life, if you'll embrace that even as you're waiting on the Lord, even as you're experiencing trials and pains and disappointment, the knowledge that God is working and moving on your behalf for your good, and for his glory will be the most exciting, the most moving, the most thrilling, the most energizing thing you can experience in this life. Now, you know, what is this expectation called? Theologically, this is called the providence of God. And grasping and, and believing and taking to heart the providence of God is really what makes all the difference between a Christian who lives a life of misery and disappointment and hopelessness And a Christian who lives a life, yes, perhaps filled with pain and difficulties, but a life outlined with hope and expectation and joy. That's what makes the difference. Now, this morning, we started a a tiny series of called Our Big God. And we looked at the sovereignty of God. And we finished off our time saying that the sovereignty of God is worked out, it's carried out, it's applied in the providence of God. Now, look once again at Romans 8.28, which we'll use as our starting point this evening. Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, in considering the sovereignty of God, which we looked at this morning, perhaps the most important word in the... in in the text here is the single Greek word, which is translated in English, all things. That speaks to the sovereignty of God over all things. But when we consider the providence of God, the most important word in this text is the single Greek word translated work together. Work together, all things work together. It's the Greek word sunergei. It's a compound word, which means, you guessed it, together, working. And you can almost hear in synergie, the English word derived from it, synergy. It's where we get our word synergy. In modern usage, synergy speaks of multiple agents, multiple variables, multiple factors working together to create a whole effect. And this whole effect is greater than the sum of the parts, And that actually very accurately explains sunerge, the together working. That events in your life are more than simply one event after another all added up to your life. But they work together in God's providence towards something greater, something bigger, something more vast. Bigger purposes, bigger ends. Now let me give you a couple of definitions of the providence of God. Just to kind of lay a little foundation here for us. I'll give you a short definition and a longer definition. Here's a short definition of the providence of God. It is the working out of the sovereignty of God. Very simply, it is the working out of the sovereignty of God. Let me give you a slightly longer definition of the providence of God. It is the continuing action of God by which he preserves his creation and works out his overall plan give that to you one more time. The providence of God is the continuing action of God by which he preserves his creation and works out his overall plan. Now, where do we get our word providence? Why has this been nicknamed the providence of God? Well, it's from the Latin word providere, which means to foresee, but it means more than just to see something ahead of time or to foreknow. It has the idea of acting wisely beforehand acting wisely making future prefer- preparation and that's the idea that all of God's actions in your life and mine are all working together sooner or for greater purposes and by the way not everything that God is doing in your life maybe not even the majority of things in your life have anything to do with you but rather have more to do with God's overall redemptive plan for the world. And, and you might ask, and, and rightly so, and with humility, how can my life have anything to do with God's redemptive plan for the world? Well, you might ask a woman named Elizabeth Edwards. She was an English woman born in the late 1600s. And at a very young age, she married Thomas Whitfield. And after giving birth six times, they had one final child and. When this final child, a little boy, was just two years old, his father, Thomas Whitfield, died at the age of 35, leaving young Elizabeth to fend for herself and seven children. Thomas and Elizabeth had named this last little boy George. And George Whitfield would go on to be the greatest evangelist in history since the Apostle Paul He preached to an estimated 10 million people in his lifetime in an era before any electronic communication or recording of any kind. And so today in heaven, if you asked Elizabeth Edwards, who would marry Thomas Whitfield, what did your life have to do with the eternal purposes of God? She could say with all honesty, didn't know it at the time, but I gave birth to the greatest evangelist of all time. That's how God works. But how does the providence of God make for a Christian life that's worth recounting, worth talking about, worth telling about? I think you as a believer in Christ, you desire that. You want to live a life that matters. You want to live a life that left a stamp. You want to live a life that did something. What does it mean to live a Christian life that if it were put into a biography, would be able to trace the hand of God working perfectly for his own purposes? Well, a firm belief in the providence of God gives you so many benefits if you were to write about your life. It gives you benefits like confidence in the Lord and the ability to see beyond your circumstances, and it certainly gives you a genuine future hope because you believe and know and trust that God is moving, that He's doing something. But how do you grow in this? How do you learn to lean on the Lord's providence more and more? How do you live a life that intentionally trusts the Lord? Well, that's our key word. Our key word here is trust. What I'd like to do this evening is give you some ways to increase your trust in the Lord so that you lean harder on His providence, on His providential working. So I'll just give you a short list here. The first way that we can learn to lean on the Lord's providence more is first, trust in God's will. Trust in God's will. I'm going to be referring to a lot of different scripture texts as we did this morning, so your best bet is probably just to make a note of them. We have to lay a foundation first as it relates to the providence of God and the will of God. Theologians have made from scripture a very useful distinction about God's will, about his desires, dividing God's will into two categories. And I think these are useful, they're very easy to defend from scripture, but let's talk about these two categories just to kind of lay a foundation here. The first category we could call God's ordained will. God's ordained will. Some have called this God's secret will, but many parts of it can be known because you simply read the Bible and his will is revealed, such as prophecy, predictive prophecy gives us God's so-called secret will. So we'll call it his ordained will. This is God's eternal, unchangeable decree all the things that he's ordained, all the things that he said will be. Psalm 33, 11 says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Romans 9, 18, Darren just read a moment ago. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. and he hardens whomever he wills. This is his ordained will. Revelation 4, 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is very, very clear in one of the greatest passages in all of our Bible about the control and the, the, the providence of God. Lamentations three thirty seven and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That's God's ordained will over all things. Similarly, the prophet Isaiah records God saying in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's his ordained will. And yet, of course, he does all of these things without touching sin or without being the direct cause of one who sins. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He doesn't take pleasure in the existence of sin, and yet he ordains it by his decree to accomplish the ultimate goal of bringing glory to himself. For example, Romans 5, beginning of verse 20 The apostle Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, I'll bet you can finish this, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin is initiated by the desire of the sinner and yet all within the overarching framework of God's ordained will. So there's his ordained will. But we could give a second category. We could call this one God's revealed will. His revealed will. This is sometimes called God's prescriptive will. Those things that he prescribes, that he commands. God has revealed his righteous standards in the laws of the Bible, in the gospel. The revealed will of God is that mankind obeys him. That's the will of God that's revealed to us. Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, here it is, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew twelve, fifty, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Apostle Paul said in Romans twelve, verse two, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. The revealed will. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says that they're giving thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And so God has revealed his will for us. Now he has included sin in his overarching plan, all while forbidding mankind from sinning. And yet he uses mankind's rebellion in sin to bring glory to himself. When we think about Acts two twenty three. this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is sin being used to bring salvation through the death of Christ. And because of sin, God has not, he has not absolutely determined to save all people. But listen to his revealed will, what we can see. Ezekiel 33, 11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, some have used this to say, well, that means God's going to save everyone. Well, a comparison to the rest of Scripture shows that's clearly not the case. That's God's revealed will. That he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but his ordained will that includes many, many things we can't see, we can't understand, is that not all will be saved. And so he's glorified then in his righteousness and in his justice and in his wrath and in his power. Now, we've gotten through a little theological foundation there. God's ordained will, God's revealed will. And you might ask, well, what does this have to do with me? I think if you ask any pastor about times that they've gotten questions from young people, in the top 10 has to always be, how do I know God's will for my life? What they really mean usually is things like, how do I know who God wants me to marry? What job does God want me to have? But those types of questions, what they're really doing is trying to get a jump on God's providence. Listen, the key to knowing God's will is not knowing God's providential plan for your life. The key to knowing God's will is properly responding in obedience to whatever he providentially brings into your life. That's God's will. It's revealed. It's already revealed. For example, someone asked the question, how do I know who God wants me to marry? Wrong question. The right question is, what type of person does God want me to marry and how do I conduct myself in marriage in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Well, how do I know that? In his revealed will. Someone asked the question, what what job does God want me to have? Wrong question. The right question is, once God provides a job for me, how do I conduct myself in that environment? Again, the answers are found in his revealed will, in the scriptures. Very often, God works through our desires and our abilities and through providential circumstances to lead us, to guide us. So the big question isn't trying to guess God's providential plan, but how to respond in obedience as it's unfolding How do you respond? But here's the real issue concerning God's will. Get it down to the core of where we live. The real issue is either you want to do God's will or you do not. There really is no in between. On a global general level, the person who consistently does not want to do God's will is not a Christian. The very definition of being a Christian is someone who follows Christ. Jesus told a gathering of his disciples in Matthew 28 to make disciples and teach them to obey him. Why? Because that shows that they're believers. But on a more specific level, for the truly regenerate Christian, there are certain areas of life in which our culture has polluted us and and our own selfishness has influenced us. And so at times we might try to explain away certain scriptural mandates, saying they're archaic, they're irrelevant, they were cultural 2,000 years ago. But the believer who trusts in the providence of God knows that being in the center of God's will is the only safe place. And it's the only place, by the way, where you'll enjoy unhindered joy and contentment and communion with the Lord. And so, are you on the side of those who want deeply to do God's will as revealed in Scripture or on the side of those that will push back and and push against and rebel against God's will. You can't know His providential plan, but you can know what to do as it unfolds. So, how do you increase your trust in the Lord so that you're leaning harder on His providential working? First way, trust in God's will. Let me give you a second way to lean harder on His providential working trust in God's preservation. Trust in God's preservation. Again, let's just set kind of a theological baseline here to understand God's preservation. I'll give you some examples of things God preserves. He preserves creation. He preserves creation. This spills over certainly into sovereignty as we saw this morning, Colossians 1:17, in Christ all things hold together. Psalm 104 is a, a grand testimony of God's preservation of creation. Verse 5 says he set the earth on its foundation so it should never be moved. Verses 10 and 13 says that he makes all the waters to flow so that things will grow on the earth. Verses 20 through 30 talks about his preservation of the food chain on earth from bottom all the way to the top. And by the way, it's not that God started everything and then sits back to watch the universe run itself. Creation has no inherent power to exist Not at all. God continually acts upon his creation to preserve it. God has promised in Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Why? Because he's actively involved in preservation. Now, God himself reserves the right and in fact predicts that he will remake heaven and earth But the seasons will always be here until his purposes for this earth are finished. God's going to remake a new heavens and a new earth, one devoid of all sin and rebellion. If you watch the news at all, liberal environmentalist politicians want to give us what they call the Green New Deal. Well, God's going to melt down the current earth with fire. I guess we could call that his Red New Deal. And so he preserves his creation until it serves his purposes to not do so anymore. What else does he preserve? Well, he preserves Israel. He preserves Israel. Joseph, the son of Jacob, was allowed by God to be taken to Egypt such that a couple of decades later, he would be instrumental in saving the lives of all of his family in the midst of a famine. And so he preserved the future nation of Israel. Generations later, you can read in Exodus the remarkable circumstances around the birth of Moses. This is at a time when Pharaoh was killing the the little baby boys of Israel. But through Moses, God would effect the escape of his people. And of course, why were his people in Egypt in the first place? Providentially, to grow from a family of 70 to a family of millions, to a nation. And so even in the midst of sin, all through the Old Testament, even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of pushing back against God's law and rebelling against him, Great punishment, even dispersal. God is preserving Israel. You might say, well, what about the future? You only have to look at the headings of the, that the publisher of your Bible provides in the Minor Prophets, the 12 smaller prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament to see what God is doing. You can almost just flip through these 12 books. The headings basically go like this. God punishes Israel. God loves Israel. God restores Israel. God punishes Israel. God loves Israel. God restores Israel. Over and over and over again. What else does God preserve? Well, he preserves individuals. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, God providentially chose to preserve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're cast into the fiery furnace because they refuse to worship and bow down to the image of King Nebuchadnezzar, but would only worship the true and the living God, God preserved them and, in fact, used that occasion to appear as the angel of the Lord in the fiery furnace with them. Same book, Daniel 6, recounts the incident in which the prophet Daniel is thrown into a lion's den and yet is preserved. The last third of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says in so many ways to not be anxious because God always provides for his own. He preserves individuals. He said in Matthew 6, 28, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You will be provided for, you will be preserved on this earth until God's purposes for you are done. The size of your 401k has nothing to do with it. You will not arrive early in heaven having starved to death and God say, you know, during the coronavirus crisis, if you had only invested in Zoom stock, your 401k would have done better and you would have lived longer. No, you'll live exactly as long as God wants you to. What else does God preserve? Well, God preserves the church. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Through all of history, major periods of persecution, which we're in one right now, by the way, the church has continued to grow and to prevail through threats from without and threats within. The church of Jesus Christ has marched forward. Why? Because God is preserving her to be the bride of Christ, presented to his son at the marriage supper of the Lamb. By the way, the biggest threat to the church is always from within, from false believers, from fraudulent doctrines, from rebellious sinners within the church. But Jesus made that promise. The gates of hell, the Greek word Hades, shall not prevail against it. And listen, by the way, this is not talking about breaking down gates. That doesn't make sense. The, the church isn't trying to break down the gates of hell. In Jesus' day, the gates of a city weren't just gates. They were rooms at the gates where the elders of the city sat and they made deliberations and determinations. It's where deals were made. It's where judgments were made. It's where wisdom was given. The gates of hell speaks to the wisdom, the so-called wisdom and the ideas of wickedness, which will not prevail over the church. The truth of the gospel will prevail. The word of God will stand. The word of God will prevail the church will prevail through the Word. Speaking of which, God preserves His Word. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not any iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now this isn't just saying that copies of our Bible will always be available, although that seems to be the case. It goes way beyond that. Jesus is saying that the revealed word of God will never pass out of existence. And more importantly, since the revealed word of God reveals God's sovereign plan, the plan revealed in his word will never pass out of existence. God's plan will not fail. I said earlier that God preserves individuals. Let's get even more specific. God preserves individual Christians, individual believers it only makes sense that if God has providentially decreed to preserve the church, then he must be preserving the salvation of individuals who make up the church. John six thirty seven Jesus promised, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What does this mean? Well, this means that God will keep you spiritually safe through any and every danger, every threat, every difficulty. You'll be safe. Now, God's preservation for the Christian doesn't mean you're spared from pain, but it does mean that you'll be preserved within it. That no trial, no pain can take away genuine faith. And that as the end of Romans 8 says, even death itself can't rob you of your salvation, can't rob you of your future hope. It's impossible. So now you're armed with these facts. That God preserves creation, Israel, individuals, the church, the scriptures, individual believers. And armed with this, what, what happens now? Well, you walk through life with tremendous confidence, absolute confidence in the Lord. In fact, a great example of this confidence is found in Psalm 91. You don't have to turn there. Let me just summarize it for you. In Psalm 91, the psalmist opens with this incredible statement of his certainty in God. He says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then if you're familiar with Psalm 91, for the rest of the psalm, he makes a a list of all the things that God's going to protect him from. Wicked men, deadly disease, terror of the night, weapons of the day, deadly disease again, battles with enemy armies. In verse 10, he says, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. He says, God's angels will protect you. You will trample underfoot the lion and the serpent. Now listen to the original reader of Psalm 91 to the covenant community of Israel. If they were faithful in obedience to God, these things were generally true even in this life. But with the added perspective of the whole of Scripture, the, all of the revelation, all the way to the very end, and the further revelation we have of a future kingdom of Messiah, with the knowledge of heaven that we have as it is now, that we have from the New Testament. Now the very last verse of Psalm 91 becomes even richer, becomes fuller, becomes uh, more embedded with meaning for us. The very last verse says, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. How long a life does the believer in Christ get? 43 times the New Testament tells you. You get eternal life. That's how long. 1 John 5. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us. Eternal life. And this life is in his son. And What do you get in eternal life? Well, you get Psalm 91. No wicked men, no deadly disease, no terror of the night, no weapons of the day, no battles with enemy armies. Verse 10, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. That's the preservation of eternal life so we trust in God's preservation. How do you increase your trust in the Lord? To lean harder on his providential working. First, trust in God's will. Second, trust in God's preservation. Third, trust in God's control. Trust in God's control. What does God control? Well, let's make a short list. God controls nature. He controls nature. Psalm 135, verse 7. He makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. First Kings 17 and 18, God decided that there would be no rain in Israel for three and a half years because of Israel's wickedness until the prophet Elijah prayed, and then rain came. Mark 439, Jesus is in a boat on a stormy sea. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's a Greek word that means that the sea instantly was calm. Went from big waves to flat sea. Instantly. Luke chapter 5. Jesus commanded his disciples to take their boats out to deep water. You don't catch many fish in deep water on the Sea of Galilee. And he said, cast their nets out. They hadn't caught anything all night long. And they caught so many fish that their nets were breaking. First Kings 17 Shows us that even wild animals do God's bidding. God has ravens bringing the prophet Elijah food. So God controls nature. He controls nature. What else does he control? He controls history and nations. He controls history and nations. Daniel 2.21. God removes kings and sets up kings. Acts 17.26. The apostle Paul is preaching in Athens. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And listen to this, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, he has determined how long a nation goes and where it is. It's all his. What else does he control? Well, he controls individual lives. And this is where we're personally most interested. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a nobody who now, today, is known by everybody On planet earth. In fact Mary herself said in Luke one fifty two That God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. Just like her. The apostle Paul said of himself in Galatians 1. Beginning in verse 15. That God set me apart before I was born. And who called me by his grace. And was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He controlled that life. How about Jonah? Jonah is a perfect illustration of the proverb 1633, the lot. what well, is there's a lot. It was a decision-making dice, so to speak, set of dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Why is Jonah a perfect illustration of that proverb? Well, when Jonah ran from God and got on a ship going in the opposite direction that God wanted him to go Jonah 1 verse 4 says that God sent a great storm which was going to break apart his ship. And so at this point, the sailors started talking. And Jonah 1 7 says, They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. God controlled it. God controls even tragic ends to individual lives he controls the tragic end of a life Exodus twenty-one thirteen gave Israel the law for what to do with the perpetrator of an unpremeditated murder and this is the law but if he did not lie in wait for him meaning it was unpremeditated but God let him fall into his hand then I will appoint a place for him to flee God allowed it He controlled individual lives. Listen, this is what Paul meant when he preached in Acts 17, 28, that in God we live and we move and we have our being. He does it all. Now you have precisely four choices concerning God's control. First choice, you can refuse to accept that God is in control and live in fear. The second choice is you can refuse to accept that God is in control and be angry at his decisions. You can refuse to accept that God is in control and be arrogantly angry toward the Lord. Third option, you can accept that God is in control and disagree with what he decides. You can accept that God is in control and disagree with him. Or the fourth option You can accept that God is in control and be content with what he decides. Could I strongly recommend option four? To accept that God is in control. Be content with his decisions. Paul said famously in Philippians 4, beginning in verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty of, And hunger, abundance, and need. Option four, accept that God is in control. Be content. How do you increase your trust in the Lord? Such that you lean harder on his providential working. First, trust in God's will. Second, trust in God's preservation. Third, trust in God's control. Let me give you one more. Trust in God's invitation. Trust in his invitation. Now, You might be thinking right now, I sort of feel like the providence of God is leaving me out. You know, I have some opinions here. Maybe you feel like you're just this rudderless ship being tossed around with no impact whatsoever, that, that you're completely helpless. Well, God gives you an invitation. What is the invitation? It is that you pray, that you pray. Now, this brings up an interesting question, doesn't it? What about prayer? Does prayer really accomplish anything if God is acting providentially anyway? This is the puzzle we face. If prayer does have an effect on outcomes, then maybe God's plan isn't fixed in the first place. Or if prayer doesn't have any effect on outcomes, then why am I praying? Well, let's start with the facts. Two very short facts. First of all, God's plan is definite and fixed. God's plan is definite and fixed. If it weren't, then we would tremble at the possibility that God's overarching plan for salvation might not make it to the end, might not be accomplished, that redemption might fail. That if at the end of your life, the redemptive plan of God comes apart, then you might not be able to go to heaven. So God's plan is definite and fixed. The second fact, though, is from Scripture, prayer has value. Prayer has value. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There is power in prayer. So how does this work? Well, to, to make this really simple, basically, under the broad umbrella of God's providential plan, God works in partnership with his people. The Apostle Paul commanded us that In Ephesians 6.18, we should be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The Apostle Paul would not command all this prayer if it were not effective and powerful. Jesus preached to us to be persistent in prayer. He said in Luke 11, beginning in verse 9, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Which, by the way, in English forms an acronym of ask. Being persistent in prayer. Prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his purposes. Prayer is the means by which the providential plan of God is worked out. And you might say, well, then what if I don't pray? Well, then under God's sovereign purposes, God will not act as you perhaps wish he would. Listen, the the purpose of prayer is not to get God to do our will. The purpose of prayer is to demonstrate our submission to his will. And to align ourselves with his will. To demonstrate that we're concerned about his will. That his will be done. When we put it this way. Does prayer change things? Yes. Prayer absolutely changes things. And a lot of time the one thing being changed is your attitude towards circumstances that God has already ordained. And so it's not that you necessarily need God to change your circumstances it's just that you need God to change how you think about them. Well, how do you increase your trust in the Lord? Trust in God's will, God's preservation, God's control, God's invitation. I want to finish off this morning just doing a, this evening rather, doing a, a test case. Let's just test. Now I want to use a very familiar story so that you don't have to think just a whole lot. The story of Hannah. Hannah, in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Hannah lived in a culture and in a time in which the ability to bear children was literally the the future of the whole family. Hannah found herself, though, as the barren wife of Elkanah. Elkanah had taken a second wife, Penina, who was having children. I mean, apparently Penina was just pregnant all the time. And Penina was terrible. She was rude. She was abusive to Hannah, lording over her the good fortune that she had in bearing many children. Now, what did Hannah want? Did, did Hannah want to be some sort of cog in the great wheel of the redemptive plan of God? No. Hannah was just a young woman who wanted a baby. And year by year, Elkanah would take his family to Shiloh, to the center of of the worship of God prior to a temple and prior to Jerusalem being part of Israel. And so they would go to Shiloh. And every year, Hannah would weep before the Lord and she would pray in desperation. First Samuel one eleven, she vowed a vow and said, "O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And, of course, you remember the story, the wonderful outcome. She did give birth to a son. She named him Samuel. And true to her promise, she gave him up to the priest in Shiloh to serve the Lord. And her prayer of celebration in 1 Samuel 2, her exaltation of the Lord, let's test and see what she thought of providence. 1 Samuel 2, 1-3, through 3, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Listen to this. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. Did you catch that? The Lord is a God of knowledge. In other words, trust His will. Trust what He knows. She continues. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. What is she saying? That God is preserving the weak. God is helping the, the helpless in other words trust his preservation she continues the lord kills and brings to life he brings down to sheol and raises up the lord makes poor and rich he brings low and he exalts he raises up the poor from the dust he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillar of the earth pillars of the earth are the lords and on them he has set the world He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What is that? That's the total domination of God. Thus, trust his control. What do we hear in the prayer of Hannah? trust God's will, trust God's preservation, trust God's control. And of course, since Samuel's birth was the result of her prayers, she obviously believed God was inviting her to cry out to him, trust in God's invitation, his invitation to prayer. Remember, God's purposes in his providence in your life is not just about you. It's not just concerning your life. God providentially allowed Hannah to weep and beg for a son for years. God providentially allowed Hannah to be tortured and to to be oppressed by Penina, which I'm certain fueled her prayers. And when Samuel was born, he wasn't just the answer to a young mother's prayer. He would become the judge of Israel. And not just the judge of Israel, but a model of what a king of Israel would look like as both judge and priest. And not just a judge and priest who is king-like, but the judge and priest who is king-like who would usher in the age of the kings of Israel. And not just the one who would usher in the age of the kings of Israel, but the one who would anoint the greatest king of Israel, King David, through whom would come the Messiah and the true Davidic King, Jesus Christ, all through the brokenhearted prayer of a young woman who just wanted a baby. By the way, one added bonus. Hannah's prayer of celebration is essentially the model and the basis for the prayer of a young woman named Mary when she was pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ and is memorialized now as the Magnificat, of Mary in Luke chapter 1. Listen, the providence of God is much more than just a dusty theological issue to consider. This is the difference between living a life of misery and disappointment and living a life of curiosity as to just how God is going to work and use various circumstances. The providence of God is the story of the Christian life. The providence of God is your story it is how he is working together many, many countless pieces of your life to affect an outcome. And not just one outcome, but endless outcomes, which all add up to the ultimate one outcome, which is God's will. Psalm 115, 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. That's what it's all about. All the pieces that work together in your life. In my life, and how they interact with one another through time and through history, through nations, through the rise and the fall of kings and peoples and events, all working to glorify God. But I want to challenge you this evening what will you do with this truth? What will you do with this knowledge? Will you continue to see harsh and hard circumstances as somehow being outside of God's providential control and now become angry or become disappointed with God? Or will you fast forward to eternity and by faith look back on your life filled with exciting and the mysterious providential works of God? filled with them. In Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, 1738 edition, in the section on the month of May, he wrote a little poem, a little adage, to give advice about life. Here's his little poem, just four lines. If you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth reading Or do things worth writing? Let me ask you a question. If someone wrote the biography of your life, would it contain an account of how you went through life in a constant state of disappointment and anxiety and self-focused dissatisfaction? Or would the biography of your life be an account of how you trusted the Lord all through strange and unexplained circumstances and saw marvelous things happen as a result. The providence of God, it is the most exciting way to live the Christian life. Let's pray. Our Father, you are in control. And we don't say that as a trite meme, as a quote. We say you are in control as a declaration of the incredible truth of your providence, of your sovereign working in our lives. And Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman watching this, hearing this message, who is having trouble trusting you right now, who is blinded by the circumstances of life, blinded by grave difficulties, blinded by the problems that beset us. I pray, Lord, for a resurgence of trust in you, to trust your will, to trust your preservation, to trust all that you do is perfect, is right. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us could learn to sit back and to relax and to watch you work. And rather than trying to guess what you're going to do, to simply respond in obedience when you do it. I pray that we would simply follow the lead of our Lord and Savior, Who made a request, but then said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman who has not come to faith in Christ. May this day, providentially, be the day that the Holy Spirit enlivens their heart to believe upon the one who gave his life at the cross for the sins of all who would believe on him. Let this be the day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.